Hey guys. Y'all can hear me. I know that, right? What? What? Can you hear me? Yeah. I got to the obligatory, like, is something on? Um, hi. Hi, my name's Catherine Mayo. If you don't know who I am, that's okay, because usually I'm in the back working sound booth, so you may have never seen my face before, and that I understand. Um, I'm 25. I've been a youth leader for about five years now. I know, I'm old, usually. I get that from the peanut gallery. But um, I'm a nurse at Scott & White, and I'm here to share my testimony and talk about what God has done in my life. But let's start at the beginning. Who's ready for some baby pictures? Look, I can be cute. It's not, it's fine. So that beautiful lady on the bottom, that's my mom. Um, and my mom and dad are in the uh, top left corner there, and that's my little brother, Ethan. Um, so this is my hometown, Lone Oak, Texas. That's it. That's the whole town. That's all. All right. So has anybody, has anyone um, ever lived in a town that's really, really small? Okay. Yeah? Okay. So raise your hand if you've lived in Temple your whole life or around Temple. Okay. Belton counts. Okay. Okay. All right. So Temple's huge compared to this place. All right. So if you don't know where Lone Oak is, you have to scroll really far in on Google Maps. It's not even worth it. Um, my original graduating class had about 80 people in it. But keep in mind, I know this is not odd for uh, some of you, but that was the public school. So that's really tiny. Um, football was king. Uh, we canceled class for an entire day on a Friday, and we went to the gym. We fit the whole school into one gym, and we had a pep rally for three hours. It was mandatory. I wasn't a fan. Okay. But we had two volunteer firefighters, and one of them volunteer. One of them was my eighth grade science teacher, and the other one was, I think, a track and field coach. I'm not even sure who he was, but there was that for the whole town. Um, so in a place like this, so what do you guys do for fun in Temple? Um, you guys, we have spare time. That's what my boss says all the time. But in Lone Oak, what do you do for fun? Um, you play sports. So no matter how bad I was at it, I played volleyball, I ran track, and I played basketball. And trust me, I was terrible. Um, but there was no off-season because we didn't have enough coaches for that. So we just, everybody did the same thing. Um, you can chill on Club Lake if you know somebody who lives there and can get you through the gate. Um, or you go to town, which is about 15 minutes away, one way. Um, the neighboring town, the biggest town in the area was Greenville, Texas, which, keep in mind, at the time only had 25,000 people in it. Um, but that was still enormous um, comparatively. Um, the next slide is my family. Uh, part, those are my parents. So that's Steve and Karen, and that's, uh, that's me and my little brother, Ethan. I know, I love this photo. It looks like an album cover. Um, but if you can go back to the one, yeah. So my dad uh, is an ordained minister. So I'm a preacher's kid. Um, that's not what he does uh, as his day job, but that's what he loves to do. Um, I grew up in the best possible circumstances. My parents are awesome. Um, my dad is a really amazing spiritual leader of the household. Um, he's really an intense scholar of the word. Both my parents are intense, so if you know me at all, you know I didn't stand a chance. Um, but 
He has a strong sense of justice, and I really am grateful for his influence in my life. And my mom just loves to have fun, um, but she's also worked every day since she was about eight years old. Um, she, she worked in a potato shed. She worked manual labor from the time she was eight up into essentially this point. She just retired as a teacher, and she's going back to school to be a nurse. Hashtag trendsetter, I guess. I don't know. Um, but Ethan is 22 now, and he lives in Dallas. He's a wicked smart young man. He uh, went to UTD, and he's just having fun in Dallas. Um, so these are the people I grew up with and the people and the kind of environment I grew up in. Um, I accepted Christ at age five. So that's not part of this talk, uh, but... I don't know how you feel about that, but when I was five, I really didn't know what I was, like, doing. I, was, I accepted Christ essentially to please my parents, but um, uh, the real, uh, real maturity in the faith came after that. Uh, the word I would use to describe my life before Christ is the word immaturity. Um, so I knew about Christ intellectually and that he loved me and he died to save me from my sins, right? But between the ages of five and about 16 years old, I was relying on the borrowed faith of my parents, and my case isn't special. A lot of kids who grow up in church-going Christian homes do the same thing. Um, but the verse that described my life up through early high school is Proverbs 26:12. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Yep, so let me be clear. I've never been the cool kid ever ever in my entire life. I pride myself on being a nerd, but I found a niche at this tiny school as being the smart one, okay? Uh, in fact, I was convinced I was the smartest person in the whole world, but my world was really small. Keep that in mind. Um, but I was not very nice about it, so I had a tendency to pin people to the mat, as it were. Um, intellectually, I had to win every argument. i generally just looked for reasons to display intellectual prowess when it wasn't called for. Everybody knows that person. Don't be that person. Um, but I was. I had to be the best at everything. I did all the things. I did the extracurriculars. Um, I was valedictorian, and I was first chair in band. I know, nerd, get, just get on this level. Um, but I knew about Christ, but my life wasn't really affected by him. Um, I didn't need him. I was going to figure my life out with my own personal brilliance. Uh, there was never a problem I couldn't solve. I knew the technically correct answers to any Bible question you could possibly have, but my faith was immature. My God was my own intellect and capability. I worshipped my talents and my achievements and my own abilities. And I was more than happy to continue to worship myself. Um, but God made sure that I didn't miss out on him. Okay, so next chapter is uh, the start of the solution. So my dad, at around age 12, uh, kind of transplanted our family to go uh, serve and be a part of a church plant. Um, and he was an elder of this church plant. So between the ages of 12 and 14, um, I, was, I was the true PK. Like, I was, I was top dog, and I thought that was great. Nobody can touch you when you're PK, right? No, that's not how it went. Um, what I started to receive um, 
the biblical message I started to receive from this church uh, between the ages of 14 and 16 is reflected really well in Romans 3, 10 through 18. I'm going to read it to you. You ready? There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Bummer. Um, so I'm getting this message of, essentially, the word is depravity, right? So there's no... Um, there's nothing good about humankind, and specifically, there's nothing good about me, right? So that's just, this is happening for two years, between 14 and 16 years of age, and I started to think maybe I wasn't all that. Um, essentially, it, it turned into this idea of a very cold and calculating God, of one who, okay, so you know sometimes maybe in like, cartoons, you've got like the super villain and he's like almost like beaten down on his minion. That image was the image that I carried of God. Okay. There was depravity, but there was no grace. Um, I didn't understand the concept of grace at all. It was a buzzword. Um, yeah, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. But what does that mean? And I had no idea. And so it um, it developed in me, the experience developed in me an internal shame about who I was as a person. Um, as I'm a terrible human being, and no, I don't deserve God. And it became a very obligatory relationship with God, almost. He was my boss. He wasn't my dad. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so I just lived like that for a few years, pretty miserable. Um... But I still had this front of, like, being the best. So it's a, it was a weird double narrative. You've got, the, you've got shame, and you've got pride at the same time. Um, and it wasn't because of any, you know, necessarily secret sin. It was just the, I, the, it was just the concept that I had in my head. It was the absence of grace. So the end of my reputation started at around 14. Um, so my dad being an elder, my mom was an elder's wife. And that comes with its own set of responsibilities. Um, my mom and another elder's wife got into it over a really unimportant thing. Um, so another elder's wife, this woman who uh, was, was fighting with my mom, um, reported my mom to the board of elders saying some, some, pretty, some pretty bad stuff. Like, she's, my mom's bitter. Um, she doesn't really know Christ. Like, all of these things that really hurt. Um, so the board of elders, minus my dad, because they never invited him to these meetings, would continually, for a year and a half to two years, call my mom before the board to say these things. Like, this is what people are saying of you, is that you're, you're bitter and you don't know God and you're, and you're hateful, um, essentially. So that really hurt my mom, and I could see that as a 14-year-old living in that house. Um, 
they demanded that she publicly apologize for her side of the argument. Um, my mom did not apologize because she hadn't done anything wrong. Um, but it was this big escalated misunderstanding. Um, but after two years, at the end of this period, at, when I was about 16, the board of elders minus my dad called the entire church congregation of around 200, 300 people minus my family into the auditorium one night and told them, do not associate with these people. Don't associate with the Mayo family um, because, because Karen's refused to repent. And they were given that ultimatum as a congregation um, and if they refused to those terms, they would be excommunicated. So they used the, the thing that killed me at the time is that, and now is that they use scripture to back it up. Um, Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is the prescription for church discipline in the Bible. And for the record, this was not a proper application of that. That scripture is still correct, is still true. That was just not done in love and understanding, and it ended up really hurting my family to the point that we had to leave town. Um, so we, we did. We got up and we moved to Waco, which is three hours away from Greenville. It was, it was quite a big move. It was kind of a traumatic move as well um, because in addition to losing my church community, who at the time didn't want anything to do with me because of that you know, ultimatum, um, I lost my friends at school as well, so I'm starting over. Um, I went from attending a school with 80 people in my class to 500 people in my class. Talk about a culture shock. I didn't know what I was doing in that. Um, but I was no longer special, so I was no longer the smart one. Um, I got mad at God for this, too. I remember coming home one day um, and crying in my dad's apartment because I had been to a band practice and these kids played notes I'd never seen before. And how was I ever going to keep up? Um, I was so angry. I was so angry at God for letting his people be responsible for my family's suffering. And more importantly to myself at the time, my suffering. How dare you, God? Um, and because I was the preacher's kid, I knew intellectually that None of my achievements or good works would ever save me, but I didn't understand it. There's a difference between knowing it and understanding it. I thought God was picking me apart because of my imperfections. There was a great deal of internal directionless shame grew in me even more. Um, so just to recap, because I know that's a lot. It's a lot to process. So I'm in Waco. I have no friends. God secretly hates keeping on forgiving me. Um, because I'm a nuisance to him almost. Um, my social status, this is the one thing that I really cared about at the time, had to be rebuilt at age 16 um, with only two years left in high school, five times the size of my first one. Um, so the second word I would use to describe my life during that upheaval would be isolation. Um, and again, there are two narratives here. Uh, there was... I'll start with the second one. Actually, the second narrative is one of profound shame. Um, the first one, discovering humility. So I came into 
an environment, and no one knew me. And like I said, I wasn't special anymore. I wasn't the smart one. I wasn't gifted in particular. Um, but I would still try to prove myself. I would still try to um, dig a niche out for myself as the smart one, because that's all I knew how to be. Um, but I was put in my place several times by my peers um, because I couldn't measure up. My superficial friends that I'd made at that new high school um, spoke ill of me to my peers and isolated me further, and that was my fault because I acted badly. Um, but I discovered profound humility out of necessity, not because I knew God. Um, so as you can imagine, maybe these two years of my life, between the ages of 16 and 18 when I graduated high school, I was, I was very lonely. I was isolated. Um, I had some superficial friendships, but didn't really make any that would last, and that kind of happens towards the end of high school. Some of you are there, and you know what that feels like of people are ready to leave home, or they're getting ready to leave home, and so you and people tend to invest in the friendships that they have now and don't necessarily make new ones. So, and I understand that. So if you're there, know that I feel you. I understand what that feels like. Um, but I tried everything. I tried being nice. I tried being mean. I tried being smart or less smart or dressing like everybody else or getting involved in all the things, doing everything I could to find a new so social niche. And nothing worked. My peer group could smell the desperation on me as I tried to fit in time and time again. And my small G God, my own personal achievement, was failing me. Um, so there's an old dead guy that I like to read um, named Blaise Pascal. He died in 1966, uh, who's a commonly accredited with this quote, there is a God-shaped hole in every man. So I did my research. That's not what he said. This is what he said. In brief, man without faith can know neither true good nor justice. All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. Yet for very many years, no one without faith has ever reached the goal at which everyone is continually aiming. A test which has gone on so long without pause or change really ought to convince us that we are incapable of attaining the good by our own efforts. But example teaches us very little. So, while the present never, satisf never satisfies us, experience deceives us and leads us on from one misfortune to another until death comes as the ultimate and eternal climax. And I'm just full of bummers. I'm sorry, guys. But I reached a point in my life where I found no value in my life. I was not unique. I was not talented. I was not particularly wanted by the people around me. And at least in my head, God was still an oppressor. He still secretly hated me, no matter what I did. And I still... I still cowered in shame, and I had no purpose and no hope. This season of life is what I would call ecclesiastical. Does anyone know where that word comes from? Ecclesiastes, the book, right? It's kind of in there. Um, so Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament written by, self-titled, The Teacher, which we know now is King Solomon. Um, Solomon was... David's descendant. He started his reign as king very, very well. He was the wealthiest, most respected, greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament. But for all his wisdom, Solomon sought fulfillment in many 
things besides an honest relationship with God. He sought it in riches, in women, and in all other manner and places um, and things and people. Ecclesiastes is his account, and it talks about how Solomon found no value in any of it. He called the meaningless over and over and over. Nothing fulfilled him, nothing but God. Um, so that's why I would use that word. So I was sort of friends with a few people who still went to church, but for a long while I refused to participate because I was still angry at God, and I was still ashamed, even though these friends continued to ask me, you know, come with us, participate, and they did what they should have done. Um, eventually I went, eventually I gave in. I, didn't, I don't really have an explanation for why I decided that that would be a good idea other than God was working in my life because I didn't want to be there. I just went back to church because it was a necessary evil toward the end of gaining friendships. Um, but God did not let go of me. And this is where the change started to happen. It's amazing what happens when you're just in an environment and you're a community of people who believe in the Lord. There's power there. But I attended a youth retreat during winter break called Alpha Chi, which stood for Christ First. And I heard a message there that I had never understood before. I don't remember the name of the guest speaker that they brought in to teach us or to lead the retreat, and honestly, it doesn't matter what his name was because it wasn't his words speaking to me. It was the words of the one true God. And these are the scriptures that God used in his word to speak to me through. Matthew eleven eighteen through 20. Um, that one says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Another one is 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, which says, Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see a pattern here? This is a pattern of a God who loves deeply and Perfectly, And before this point, through no fault of my parents, um, I had never really understood or heard this message before in my life. I had just known that I was a sinner and that I was doomed. And then there was grace. Finally, refreshing, all-encompassing grace. On the last night of the retreat, I accepted Christ again, for real this time, at age 17. Um, I learned a bit later on in my life, maybe middle of college, that you need both ideas to understand truly. The first idea is the one that I've had my whole life, the one called depravity. Reflected in Romans 3, which was the one that says there is no one who loves God. Um, the, the poison of vipers is on their lips. You know that real bummer of a passage? Yeah, that one describes mankind's depravity. Ecclesiastes um, is 
evidence that all is vanity apart from God. All is useless, meaningless. Um, man's heart is evil and cannot be trusted. And any attempt from mankind to self-save, to save themselves, will end in failure. And that's exemplified in Galatians 3. Um, so in Galatians, Paul is writing to the church because he heard that the believers are making the new Gentile believers conform to the law of Israel. And he gets pretty brutal, so grab your popcorn. It's, it's, it's time for some drama. So he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or, or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you have heard? Ouch. Ouch, indeed. So, um, Paul is great. Paul so, he just, drama. Okay. But this is, this was uh, the church in Galatia. They were trying to redeem themselves. And Paul is putting a stop to it. He's like, I'm not going to let you continue to um, put these requirements on these people who are just as saved, even though they're Gentiles. Um, so there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. I think that's pretty well known. I've lived with that my whole life. The second idea, the one that was new, is the but God idea. That God loves his children and desires to give them rest in, in himself and to delight in them. So Matthew 11, the one I spoke earlier about, come to me, all you who are weary. That is the same God. And Psalm 149 talks about how God delights in those who love him. True delight, deep delight. Not, oh yeah, so you made me happy because you did what I said. No, there's a relationship there. There's a depth there that I had previously not understood. God sent his son Jesus to allow us to live by faith in God, relying on his grace and not on our striving. Galatians 2, 20 through 21 is excellent, and even if you back it up to, say, verse 19, it says, For through the law I died to the law, that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, loved me, and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Those aren't small words either. So what would Kim Ron Slayman say here? Don't leave Jesus dead, right? I need to put it on a t-shirt. I'm convinced it needs to go there. Um, our God defeated death, and we are freed by this truth, and we can have abundant life now. Like it says in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly that's not talking about, the word he uses here is not future tense. It's present tense. We don't have to wait 10 years down the road. We don't have to wait until we die to have eternal life. Eternal life starts now, and if that doesn't excite you, you could be dead inside. I'm just saying. Um, 
the third and final word that I chose is identity. Surprise, surprise. I've made it my mission that if you remember nothing else about this talk, that you still remember these points. That you are so valued by God that he gave you a new name and a new identity. We have received this new and lasting identity in the covenant um, of the finished work of Christ. And earlier I quoted the guy named Blaise Pascal. Um, he actually has more to say. He's super wordy, so bear with me. This is where that quote comes from. They just took this, I think, and squished it and simplified it into about seven words. But the real stuff's really good, too. Man tries in vain to fill the void with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can, only, can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. God alone is man's true good. So why does this matter? Why did I go on this rant about your identity? Some of you are getting ready to leave home for college or for the workplace. Some of you are new here and just learning how to be a high schooler. But it doesn't matter what circumstance you're in, who your parents are, what sports you play, what you do with your life, what job you choose. All of these things don't matter if your identity is not in Christ. You will struggle with identity at some point in your life. Absolutely. If your identity is in anything besides who Christ says you are, you're headed for failure. Your Christ-given identity alone is permanent. That is the one thing that cannot change. Christ does not change. Christ does not change the fact that he chose you and he made you live. He gave you new life. That will never change. Your Christ-given identity alone will fill the void. We're not talking about existence. We're not talking about life barely. We're talking about full, abundant life. Christ is the only thing that will fill the vacuum that Pascal describes. The process of putting yourself aside so that you can take on that new identity that Christ affords you is not easy. So if I accepted Christ when I was 17 and I'm 25 now, how many years is that? Eight, right? I've been struggling with that for eight years. And I will continue to struggle with identity for the rest of my life. It's not easy. Putting yourself aside to take on that new identity is not easy, but it is worth it. Worth it. In taking off the old and putting on the new, there's a peace in knowing exactly who you are. And that cannot be changed or taken away. So, I'm Catherine. I'm a nurse of Scott and White. I'm an avid nerd. I love game nights. Uh, I'm a long-distance runner, a sister, a daughter, and a youth group leader. But who I am is I am Christ's child. And let me leave you with this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new has come. The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, and we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God.
Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for the grace that you offer us. Let it not be a buzzword anymore. Let it mean something to us. Let it refresh our souls to know that you have given us a new identity. I pray for every young man and young woman in this room that they would put off the old and put off the temporary and they would take on the eternal and that they would wear your identity. I pray that anything in this talk that was not helpful, may it be dismissed and forgotten and let my identity step out of the way so you can be heard. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen. There's some questions on your tables.